Most of you know we uh, finished um, a series, a preaching series through the book of Joshua. Um, if you're visiting with us, we preach through books of the Bible um, in what we call expository preaching, which means we try to just get up and take a passage of scripture and say this is what this scripture is saying to us and how it applies to our lives. Um, and I am going to start a new series through the book of John. However, I wanted to give myself a little breathing room between those two series, so I was contemplating what I should preach and thought, I'll just preach on something a little more straightforward and easy, so I chose Revelation 13. (laughs) So, over the next two weeks, this Sunday and next Sunday, I'm going to preach through the two visions that we have in Revelation 13. I chose this because I do think that they are pertinent to our time and our situation. And so if you would, take your Bibles, turn to Revelation 13. We're going to begin by reading through verses 1 through 10, which will be our text this morning. Remember, this is God's inspired and inerrant word. Revelation 13, beginning in verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive... To captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Amen. Let me pray and ask his blessing upon this text. Father, we thank you for your word in this chapter. We pray that you would please um, help us to understand it through the illumination of your spirit and give us soft hearts to accept your teaching in it that we might be transformed through the renewal of our minds. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John to the churches in seven cities in Asia Minor in the first century A.D. It was a time of great difficulty and struggle For the church, the Roman Empire had begun persecuting Christians first under Emperor Nero. All the apostles at this point had been killed for their faith, except, it seems, the apostle John, 
who had only been exiled to the island of Patmos, from which he wrote this book, even though Nero's death in AD 68 had brought a period of reprieve for the church, yet persecution had ramped up again under Emperor Domitian. It was also a period in which heresy of all kinds was rampant in the church, leading many professing Christians astray into error. You can see this even from the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Or as you read the New Testament, some false teachers are trying to ensnare people into legalistic asceticism. Others were seeking to seduce them into idolatry and immorality. So the church was being attacked from without by the violent opposition of the Roman government and from within by the deceptive heresy of false teachers. And it was taking a heavy toll. So for instance, Five of the seven churches addressed in Revelation 2 and 3 had already been deeply compromised in some way under the threat of being severely chastised by Jesus Christ for it. It was into this context that the book of Revelation was written. And its purpose was not simply to predict a series of events which would happen in the distant future at the end of history, but more immediately to help its first century Christian readers to understand the unseen spiritual conflict going on between Christ and the devil, which lay behind their own experience of tribulation in order to encourage them to resist the devil and to persevere in faith unto the end. That being said, however, we must also recognize that Revelation presents this unseen conflict between Christ and the devil as being finally resolved when Christ returns at the end of the age. And so what this means is that even though the spiritual realities portrayed in Revelation apply most immediately to the experience of the first century church who was reading it, yet they also apply to the ongoing experience of the church in every generation all the way until the return of Christ. And in this way, the book of Revelation was also written to help the church in every age understand their experience of tribulation from heaven's vantage point so that they might be encouraged to persevere in faith unto the end without compromise. It's also important to realize that the book of Revelation is not like other literature that you have in the New Testament. I think you figured that out. Rather, it's part of actually a larger body of ancient texts, often called apocalyptic literature by modern scholars, which uses visions filled with symbols to communicate its message. So throughout the book of Revelation, John introduces his many visions by saying, then I saw. And the things he describes in his visions are obviously symbolic, horse-like locusts with human faces coming out of a bottomless pit, a great red dragon who seeks to devour a woman's child upon its birth, a beast rising out of the sea with seven heads and ten horns, etc., So a proper interpretation of Revelation requires determining what the symbols in John's visions 
represent. And fortunately, the book often does this itself. So, for instance, it is common for a symbol to be introduced in one vision and then explained, at least to some extent, in a later vision. And the astute reader is also going to recognize that the symbols in John's vision often, frequently allude to people and places and events from the Old Testament, which can shed additional light on their meaning. So these interpretive tools, and some others, are sufficient to provide the reader with an adequate understanding of the book of Revelation, although certain aspects of it will always remain somewhat mysterious. And of course, it must be said that a combination of factors has led to a diversity of opinions about the meaning of the book of Revelation, even among conservative evangelical scholars. So the strangeness of the material in the book is one factor, but differing assumptions about how to understand other passages of Scripture factor in as well. And so we have to make allowance for a bit more disagreement when we come to this book than we would in other parts of the Bible. Now that we've laid out those basic principles about the book of Revelation, let's look specifically at Revelation 13. Now this chapter contains two visions of John that he had about two different beasts. The vision of the first beast, who is often called the beast, is in verses 1 through 10. The vision of the second beast is in visions verses 11 through 18. Today, we're going to look at the first vision. Next Sunday, we'll look at the second. Now, before looking at the vision in chapter 13, we actually have to review the vision in the previous chapter, chapter 12, because the two visions are connected. For instance, chapter 13 mentions the dragon. Who is that? Well, you have to look back to chapter 12. So in chapter 12, John saw a vision of a great red dragon standing in front of a pregnant woman waiting to devour her male child as soon as it was born. A grotesque picture. The dragon is identified for us in verse 9 as that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The child is also clearly the Messiah, Jesus Christ, because he is described in verse 5 as, quote, the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, using Psalm 2. In the vision, the child, who is Jesus, escaped the dragon, who is the devil, and was, quote, caught up to God and to his throne. Well, we know that's an obvious reference to his resurrection and ascension. The woman in the vision is the believing community of God's people. At least we can say that much because it says her offspring are described in verse 17 as, quote, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, which the readers would have recognized as a clear reference to the church. In the vision, John saw the dragon, Satan, defeated and thrown down to the earth when the child Jesus was 
taken up into heaven by resurrection and ascension. Upon his defeat, John saw the dragon, Satan, filled with great wrath because he knew that his time was short. And having failed to destroy the child, Jesus, he proceeded to make war on the woman and her offspring, the church. So, the vision in chapter 12 closes at the end, verse 18, with these words. And he, that is the dragon, stood on the sand of the sea. He's ready to make war upon the saints. Now that's important because it shows us there's a connection between the vision of chapter 12 and the visions of chapter 13. In fact, we'll see that the visions of chapter 13 explain in greater detail the nature of Satan's warfare against the offspring of the woman, of the church of Jesus Christ upon the earth. And what these two visions in chapter 13 show us is that the dragon, Satan, wages war against the church through two agents, symbolized by two beasts. In fact, the dragon and his two beasts function as a sort of counterfeit trinity, which not only opposes God, but seeks to take his place in the world. The first agent through which Satan wages his war against the church is identified in chapter 13, verses 1 through 2. Look there again. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth like a lion's mouth. It's a terrifying vision. It's intended to be so, a horrifying vision. It's interesting to note that in the book of Job, chapters 40 through 41, God described there two great beasts, one from the sea, Leviathan, one from the earth, Behemoth. And the Old Testament would often use the, the sea beast, Leviathan, as a symbol of power an untamed hostility against God and of his people, and God would often be seen as vanquishing and taming Leviathan. And that description of that sea beast, there's something that is echoed here with this beast rising out of the sea. Power, opposition to God. But this beast clearly also echoes the beast's that the prophet Daniel saw in his vision. And those, like those terrible beasts, this beast was symbolic. The question then is, what did it symbolize? And the answer is given a little later in the book. So if you flip over to chapter 17, you can see that John has another vision of the same beast. In fact, he appears in many visions in Revelation. In chapter 17, verse 3 and following, he says, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw, another vision here, a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. 
Notice, this is the same beast that John saw back in chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. They both have seven heads, ten horns, blasphemous names. Then skip down to verses 9 through 14, where John explains who the beast is. So here we go. He says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. Lord, give us wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth king, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Now, when I say that explains who the beast is, you're going, well, there's still a lot of mystery here, right? But, Let me point out two things that those verses reveal about the identity of this beast. First, notice that its heads and horns represent kings and kingdom. In other words, like the beast which Daniel saw, this beast which John saw symbolizes an earthly government that exercises power and authority over men. And I think this is affirmed in chapter 17, verse 14, and also back in chapter 13, verse 7, when it says that this beast makes war upon the saints and conquers them. It's the idea of a government authority which uses its military power to control human society. Second, the original readers of this book would have understood the beast, I believe, to be clearly the Roman government in particular. Now, this is especially evident in verse 9 when it says the seven heads, the seven heads of the beast, are seven mountains. Now, in our day, if someone said the 50 states or the 50 heads of the beast are the 50 states, you go, oh, talking about America, right? Well, in that day, any first century reader would have recognized the term seven mountains as an obvious reference to the city of Rome. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson has put it this way. He says, anyone living in the Roman Empire knew that Rome was built on seven hills. It began as seven small villages on the left bank of the Tiber River, end quote. And I would add that even today, one of the best-known nicknames of Rome is the city of seven hills. It refers to the seven hills that the ancient city of Rome was founded upon. You can actually Google it if you want to. Don't do it right now, later. So you see, when the original Christian readers heard John say, the seven heads are seven mountains, well, they would have immediately understood. This is a reference. This beast represented in some way the Roman government. And when the apostle went on to say that its seven heads also represented seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and that its ten horns were ten kings who have not yet received royal power. Well, 
If the beast is the Roman government, they would have understood this as a clear reference to, in some way, a succession of past, present, and future Roman emperors. And yet, while it is clear, I believe, that the beast symbolized the Roman government with its rulers, yet, later on in the book, John would have a vision of the final judgment in Revelation 19. And guess what he sees? He sees Jesus return and capture the beast and throw him into the lake of fire. Now, what this means is that the beast, which appears in multiple visions of the book of Revelation, symbolized something that was indeed manifested in the Roman government, but also transcended it. Something that would be present in the world until the end of the age. Most likely then, we ought to interpret the beast at its fundamental level as symbolizing human power and authority used in the service of the dragon, Satan, for the destruction of God's people. So in the first century, the most obvious manifestation of the beast was the Roman government. But the beast would take many forms down through the centuries until Christ returned to vanquish it forever. So now, having seen the interpretation of this symbolic beast that John first sees coming out of the sea in Revelation 13, 12, 1 and 2, let's return to Revelation 13 and just see what else the vision has to say about this beast. Look first at chapter 13, verse 3, where it says of the beast, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. Now here we see the first obvious sign that the beast seeks to counterfeit Jesus Christ. Because this is a mock resurrection. Just as the Lord appeared to John in chapter 5, verse 6, as the lamb that was slain. So here the beast appears to have been slain, but comes back to life. And yet we must ask more specifically, what does it mean that the beast appears to be slain, but to come back to life again, at least one of its heads? Well, most likely the original Christian readers would have understood what that was getting at. They would have understood it was a reference to the way that one Roman emperor dies having persecuted the church, only to be replaced by another head of the beast who also persecutes the church in their day. And in fact, in that time, the original readers, they would have recognized that the church had been terrorized by Emperor Nero. And then Emperor Nero died. And then Domitian came to power. And he continued the persecution in his day, except even on a greater scale. You say the beast may be struck down by God, but he keeps coming back in new forms of state-sponsored oppression of the church. And I think this is what is symbolized in verse 3. Now, let me point out some things that the vision tells us about the activity of the beast. Notice first in verse 2. The beast exercises authority and power from Satan. So as it says there, and to it, the dragon, that's Satan, 
gave his power and his throne and great authority. Again, here is more evidence that the beast is like a counterfeit to Christ, just as Jesus came wielding divine authority, so the beast wields authority of Satan. And since Satan's goal, remember from the previous vision, was to wage war against the people of God and destroy them, that's exactly what the beast seeks to carry out here in the vision of chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. The beast represents satanically inspired human power and authority used to oppose God and destroy his people. Now, what does that look like? Well, we see it play out more specifically there in verses 4 through 6. So first, the beast intimidates human beings into giving it their allegiance by a sheer demonstration of its power. Notice verse 3. When the beast comes back to life, the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And then in verse 4, and they worshiped the beast. They gave it their ultimate allegiance. For he had given authority to the beast. Sorry, they worshiped the dragon. For he had given authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? You see what's happening here in the vision? The beast is setting itself up in the world as mankind's ultimate authority over against God. This is why, verses 5 and 6, we see that the beast is described as uttering arrogant blasphemies against God and his name and his dwelling and everyone in heaven. The beast opposes God in the world and uses its power and authority from Satan to intimidate people into worshiping it, that is, giving it their ultimate allegiance instead of God. So this refines our understanding of the identity of the beast. It isn't just human power and authority per se, but human power and authority, to quote one scholar, turned beastly. Human power and authority, which under satanic influence is employed to coerce men into giving their ultimate allegiance to those who wield it instead of God. That's why one New Testament scholar, Richard Bauckham, describes the beast as the deification of power. And when human power and authority turns beastly like this, by the way, as it had in first century Rome, demanding ultimate allegiance for itself in opposition to God, what do you think happens to Christians? They are persecuted, of course. And this is what John saw in verses 7 through 8. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world and the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. So, at the instigation of Satan, human authority turned beastly. At the instigation of Satan, it bends its power to destroy the church threatening Christians with punishment if they do not surrender their ultimate allegiance to it. Either they bend the knee to the beast or they are crushed beneath its feet. 
And under that kind of pressure, you see that only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, that is only those who are truly chosen for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, whose names are there from before the foundation of the world, will be kept by God from giving their allegiance to the beast. Now, you're a first century reader. Of course, in the first century, Christians to whom this letter were originally written, the beast could not have been more vividly real. The beast was the Roman government. The Roman Senate, for instance, had declared that each Caesar was God upon their death, beginning with Augustus. And by the time John wrote this book, the living Caesar had begun demanding that everyone in the empire pay homage to him as divine. If they did not, they would be killed or severely persecuted in various ways. And by and large, the, everyone in the emperor, except for Christians, submitted to Rome's requirement of emperor worship because of the sheer intimidation of its beastly power. But as I mentioned previously, the beast isn't limited to the Roman Empire because, after all, as I said, John sees it in his vision of the final judgment in Revelation 19, caught by Jesus himself and thrown into the lake of fire. So when the Roman Empire, for instance, was finally dealt a mortal blow, well, the beast manifests itself in new forms again and again throughout history. Each one eventually dies, but the beast keeps coming back, you see. In post-Reformation Europe, the beast was the Roman Catholic Church, as all the old Protestant confessions were claimed. Why? Because it yielded political and military power to persecute and kill Protestant Christians who refused to submit to what they understood to be its false gospel. But in 1930s Germany, the beast was the Third Reich, which wielded the power of the state to persecute and kill confessing Christians who refused to give their allegiance to the Fuhrer. Or in 1950s Germany, the beast was the communist government that persecuted and killed Christians who refused to bow the knee to Mao and to follow his revolutionary agenda. And today, in a country like Iran, the beast is the Islamic government, which persecutes and kills Muslims that convert to Christianity or Christians that seek to convert them. See, the beast keeps coming back in different forms all the way to the end of history. And then, of course, finally, there will probably be, my interpretation is correct, one climactic manifestation of the beast at the end of the age. The one whom John calls Antichrist. Paul described him in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-4 as the man of lawlessness who is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. It's him, Paul went on to say in verse 8, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Now, if I'm correct in suggesting that fundamentally the beast in John's vision here represents human power and authority 
wielded against the church under the instigation of Satan, like they experienced at the hands of the Roman government in their day, then it is not only manifested in human governments like the Roman Empire, but it could also be manifested in other kinds of human institutions that use their authority and power to demand that people compromise their faith in God by giving their allegiance to them who wield the power rather than God. So, for instance, I would argue in America, the beast might be manifest in government authorities who require Christians not to teach certain biblical truths or require them to disobey clear commands of Scripture. Hey, right here in our own state, California, the law passed that prohibits mental health providers, which would include counselors in places like churches, of, quote, any practice that seeks to change behaviors or gender expressions or to eliminate or reduce sexual or romantic attractions or feelings toward individuals of the same sex, end quote. That's the law. Or the so-called anti-discrimination law in Colorado, which required a Christian cake baker to bake a cake celebrating a gay wedding. But the beast might also be manifest in a university professor who berates Christian students and docks their grades for articulating Christian convictions in class. Or perhaps a, a hospital or medical provider that requires all of their doctors and nurses to be willing to assist in abortions despite their Christian convictions. The beast is manifest anywhere human authorities demand for themselves allegiance which rightly belongs to God and thereby blasphemy, blasphemously set themselves up in his place and then use their power to wage war upon Christians who persist in giving their ultimate allegiance to God alone. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if you noticed, but this is a very stark picture being painted for us here in Revelation 13, 1 through 10. I mean, the reach of the beast in this vision is universal. It says in verses 7 through 8, authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all humanity is described as either giving their allegiance to the beast or to Christ. So it went on to say, verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. No one's going to escape this choice between worshiping the beast or Christ, including us. And the beast will use human authority and power to intimidate us into choosing it over God. It says to everyone, submit to me rather than God or be publicly ostracized, you know, pay higher taxes, forfeit promotions, lose your job, be excluded from educational opportunities, be barred from participating in government or refuse justice in court or arrested or imprisoned or have your family threatened or being hauled off to jail yourself or killed. The beast will wage war against the church in all these kinds of ways down through the ages depending on how it manifests itself in different times and places. So you see, the question is that we are faced with in this chapter is how will you respond? 
Will you be intimidated by the sheer power of the beast? Will you say with the rest of humanity, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Will you give in and comply with its demands? Will you say, well, I guess I got to compromise here in order to avoid the wrath of the beast? Here's the standard that the text itself leaves us with who are Christians. Facing the intimidation of the beast. Look at verse 10. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And so many Christians in John's day were persecuted and killed by the Roman government because they would not offer that pinch of incense in recognition of the deity of the emperor. All I had to do, Kaiser Curios. And we too must not compromise by paying homage to the beast, even though it means that we will face its wrath. You know, perhaps you're here this morning and this type of radical Christian devotion, it just seems strange. It seems extreme to you. This is all pretty harsh. I just want to suggest if it does seem very extreme to you, like this can't be what Christianity is all about. I just want to suggest you probably just don't know what Christianity really is. Because for some people who profess faith in Christ, it's just simply about you know, one of many faith traditions which you check the box next to because it's part of your religious heritage and you like how it makes you feel when you go to church and you're part of a community of friendly people. But I'm here to tell you that true Christianity begins with coming to a certain conviction in the depths of your soul that what the Bible says about Jesus Christ is true. It means believing that he is the eternal son of God who humbled himself by becoming a man and that he entered into the world to be our savior. It means believing that he lived the perfect life on our behalf because we were unable to do so. It means that he willingly submitted himself to a torturous death on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It means Believing that after dying on the cross, he was buried, and on the third day, he rose again, demonstrating that God had accepted his sacrifice and that he had triumphed over the power of death for us. And it means believing that he has now ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, where he now reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords, waiting for the appointed time when he will return to the earth to raise his people from the dead and judge the wicked and make all things new. You see, true Christianity means being fully convinced that Jesus Christ is the one Savior of men and the Lord of the universe. And it means responding to that truth by repenting of your old sinful ways and running to Jesus in faith, trusting him to forgive you of all your sins and to clothe you with his righteousness through his death and resurrection. All is a free gift. And it means knowing that having done all of that for you as a free gift of love, and promising to return again to take you to be with himself forever, 
that Jesus Christ has now become your ultimate master, whom you willingly serve with all of your heart for the rest of your days. It is only when you understand Christianity in that full and robust way that this talk of Christians being willing to die rather than to compromise their devotion to Christ makes any sense at all. So we see in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, that the saints conquered all of Satan's attacks against them because they, quote, loved not their lives even unto death. So today, maybe you need for the first time to get serious about Christianity, to truly repent of your sins and truly put your trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord so that this kind of radical devotion to Christ might begin characterizing your life as well. And for us as believers, we know that the beast will rise again against us as it did against the first century church to whom John originally wrote this book. In other words, human authorities will take for themselves the position that belongs to God alone and use their power to seek to coerce us into submitting to their demands rather than to the will of God. Now, with that in mind, let me just close with four reasons why you should resist the beast and remain faithful to God no matter what the cost. First, you should resist the beast Remain faithful to Christ, because guess what? Christ is far more dangerous than the beast. If you are pressured by human authorities to disobey God in order to avoid their wrath, remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 28, where he said, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If we reject the will of God in order to comply with the will of human powers and authorities, oh, we may spare ourselves some trouble in this life, but we will face the wrath of God for all eternity. But if we remain faithful to God, even though it contradicts the will of human powers and authorities, oh, it may cause us some trouble in this life, but God will grant the glories of his kingdom to us for all eternity. Jesus said, Matthew 10, 32-33, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Second, you should resist the beast, And remain faithful to Christ because in the end, Christ is going to destroy the beast along with all its followers. You see, in this life, it might appear smart to compromise your faith to comply with the demands of beastly human powers in order to save your skin. But when you see what happens to the beast, And all who follow him. In the end, such compromise appears horribly foolish. 
Revelation 19 verse 20 shows us what will happen to the beast. It says, and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet. We'll get to that next week. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And Revelation 14, 9 through 11, it gives this chilling account of what will happen to all who give their allegiance to the beast. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on its forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. You see, brothers and sisters, the beast may be intimidating now, and the pressure to submit to it will be great. But we must take courage to resist the beast, because it is a defeated and doomed foe. And we must remain faithful to Christ no matter what the cost, because if we give in and serve the beast, we will share in its future destruction. Third, you should resist the beast and remain faithful to Christ, because if you do, Christ will give you a great reward. You know, Revelation chapter 15, verses 2 through 4, give us this glorious picture of those who refuse to give in to the intimidation of the beast, but conquered over him by holding fast to the gospel. Listen to these words. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its names, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Revelation 1 through 3 talks about the overcomers. Speaking to the saints who suffer tribulation in this life, but overcome the pressures to compromise their faith. And it says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Or again, to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and I will give him the morning star. To the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with him on my throne. Brothers and sisters, if you compromise your faith and you submit to the beast... You may save yourself some social ostracization and economic hardship and physical harm, even death. And you may gain social acceptance, economic prosperity, physical security, even a few more years on this measly life. But what are those things in comparison to the blessings that await you if you overcome by holding fast to God in the end. Fourth, 
you should resist the beast and remain faithful to Christ because Christ gave himself up unto death for you. Since Christ has loved us even more than his own life, should not we now love him in the same way? It's exactly what Paul said so famously in 2 Corinthians 5, 14-15, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You know, when Polycarp, that old bishop of Smyrna, was brought into a stadium filled with a jeering crowd of onlookers in A.D. 155, just 60, 70, 80 years, who knows, after this letter of Revelation was written. And he was commanded by a Roman official to reproach Christ so that he might be set free. And he replied this way, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? So he was burned at the stake. But you see, through his faithfulness to Christ unto the end, he conquered the beast. Let it be so with every one of us, brothers and sisters, by the strength which God has given us by his spirit. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these visions of revelation which you and your wisdom have given to us, caused to be preserved and passed down to us. Lord, we read those words, this calls for wisdom. We pray that you would give us wisdom to understand these things. Hearts that are soft and believing to receive them. And that they would have your intended effect upon our souls, fortifying us, strengthening us, calling us to be overcomers, to be faithful to the end, even if it means captivity or the sword. We pray, O God, that every person in this room who names the name of Christ would be among those Described in chapter 15, standing around the sea of glass with harps in their hands, singing the song of Moses. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.